Welcome to The Hidden Truth, Breaking the Silence. I'm your host, Jonathan McLernan. Each episode, we explore stories of individuals and how they've been affected by being a part of a secretive Christian fellowship. The stories shared here may include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Dysfunction happens when doctrine meets dogma and silence is paramount. So let's pull back the veil on today's episode of The Hidden Truth. All right, welcome to the show. It is my pleasure today to be hosting Sherry. Um, I realized I should actually have figured out, is it Vandermeid and Autry? Did I get that right? Yes, sir. <laughs> I wanted to get the order, order of last things correct. So uh, Sherry has was a member of the church that I'm, I'm currently a part of for a period of time in her, her early life and ended up leaving because of some things that happened to her. So we're going to explore Sherry's story and uh, talk a little bit about how um, her experience with this fellowship led to her doing what it is that she's doing today. So uh, welcome to the show, Sherry. And if you could just share a little bit about uh, what it is you're doing currently. Well, thank you very much for having me and um, really appreciate it. I am currently one of three co-founders of Advocates for the Truth. And that evolved um, from my case, um, my legal case from what had happened to me as a child that started last, my legal case started last fall. And then through a chain of events, um, kind of mushroomed into a much bigger picture. And then that created Advocates for the Truth, which we are about exposure and protection for Mm -hmm. children, vulnerable adults within the community um, that has, and abuses that have been covered up uh, for for decades, including mine. I've been Mm -hmm. on my path of exposure about my abuse for 40 years now. This year is the 40 year anniversary of when I made my first ask for what I thought was right to be done. So going back in time here, uh, you were born and raised in this fellowship. Is that correct? Correct. I have um, four siblings. I'm the only girl, four brothers, born into it. And we are second generation. Mm -hmm. And I left when I was 17 when I had moved out. So looking back kind of on your childhood, what, what, uh, where did you grow up and kind of what do you remember about it in the early years? We, I was born in Southern California, moved up to Stockton area, raised throughout the valley. Um, we did a lot of farming. And one of um, five siblings, being the only girl, I was the one in the house doing the cleaning, doing the laundry, always wanting to be out on the tractor doing the fun guy stuff. And um, that was much better than than cleaning. And uh, so I, I, it was interesting having four brothers and uh, I really became, it helped build my character and um, who I became as an adult, for Mm -hmm. sure. Now, where, where do you fit in? Are you oldest, youngest, somewhere in the middle? I have one younger brother. Okay. And then three, three older ones. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you, you had, you had uh, maybe older brothers that would, uh, would pick on you a little bit, but stuck up for you. If anybody else there do that. Yes. Yes. And the two oldest brothers, uh, they were old enough that we weren't super close. You know, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. were off into high school and whatnot. My youngest brother and I, and the brother just older than I, we were kind of the three that were tightest and fought the most. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As it happens, and so, yeah. um, so, so, you, so you grow up in the fellowship. You, you go to meetings, and um, at, so, at some point in time, uh, you're, you're exposed to to an abuser who who takes advantage of you. I think there will be people who wonder. So, and of course, as always, the disclaimer is: you only share what you're comfortable sharing when we're chatting about these things because these are difficult topics. But um, how old were you when uh, the, the first time that uh, you were abused? By um, Steve Rose in particular, who had abused me, it was I was 11, 12 years old when he started grooming me. Okay. And that was the year he was in our field. 
And the major extent of the abuse from him was uh, 13 to 14 years old. Okay. So, uh, and for those who might be listening who aren't part of this fellowship, so Steve Rose was a worker that is a a minister of the gospel within his fellowship. And so he started grooming you. Now, the term grooming has started to get more use in in recent years, but it's one that probably wasn't widely used for a number of years. So for those who might be unfamiliar, how, how would you, in your words, describe like what grooming is? And then perhaps you can share a little bit about, you know, you look back and say, like, what were his grooming behaviors? So being, being a country girl, I, I think in country terms. And so I kind of liken it to checking a gate. Is the okay. gate latched? Will it swing open? Um, is the gate wide open from the get-go? And grooming is checking that gate hey can i get through a little bit can i get can i squeeze through the gate can i just come full bore through the gate and those are all actions of just checking checking a little bit further how how much more into your space their bubble your bubble can they go and for me it was a lot of um flattery Again, being raised with farming, a very defined role as a female, to get that attention and affirmation was a very big part of the grooming process because I was very shy. Uh, I had become introverted, became more introverted after the abuse. But I was just a scrawny little 80-pound soaking wet little scrawny girl that um, any attention from a male was very, very flattering. So there was a lot Mm -hmm. of flattery, the little side hugs that became big hugs, um, kissing. And those were all grooming actions. Right. So kind of like just testing what are you comfortable with now as a bit of a backdrop um would you have classified your parents as strict adherence to i I guess the the tenets of the the fellowship you know were they rule followers or they were or were they a little bit more relaxed about it and and then sort of as a connection to that how like were workers held in high esteem they were held in very high esteem and the home i was raised in was very strict when if the workers called and said hey you know can we come over tonight even though there was five kids we were farming had a lot on the table the home was immediately opened and everything was organized to perform that host duty mm-hmm. so yeah there was a lot of um they were held in very very high esteem and their their decisions were not questioned they what they said or spoke was uh it was gospel that mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what we did and don't my perception of it was do not ever question that authority and right. yeah if they called beds were ready right right and we, of course we can look back on that now through the lens of adulthood and adult experience and and you're no longer a part of the fellowship and you can look back and think like, you know, wow, a lot of this stuff seems kind of, I want to say like almost ridiculous the, the way that it was, um, the way that they're, they're sort of held in this unquestioned regard. But part of, part of why that takes place is, you know, the idea behind these, these homeless itinerant ministers going to preach the gospel is that they're called by God to do this. And when you, when you put a label like uh, called by God to preach the gospel, it then can bring into it this idea of, well, we can't question what it is that they do. And so when this man, Steve Rose, who was a worker at the time, comes into your home and it's like, well, this is this is a man called by God to preach the gospel. So we can't really question what it is that he does. When he started like showing you affection and attention, was there any question in your mind like, huh, I'm not sure if this is right or was it just this is really great. I'm, you know, I, I appreciate receiving this affection. Initially, before the really intense abuse started, it was it was very affirming to me, and Mm -hmm. 
there were not boundaries that were crossed during the grooming process to the best of my recollection uh, that would have made me feel bad. It was just more, he was such a celebrity, six foot six, very charismatic. It was very much a seduction of mm. sex, child sex abuse. So here's right. a celebrity and, oh, he's paying attention to me. Right. Okay. When he came back to rest with us, then the gate, the gate was fully open then. Okay. So, so yeah. So here, here we have like a, a charismatic speaker who's a tall, like imposing authority figure. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know the man. Like, was he like, like a, a really good speaker and people like revered him because of his ability to speak and hold people's attention? Or was it just merely the fact that he was a worker? A combination, very charismatic, mm -hmm. could sell ice to Eskimos. Everybody loved him. All the older girls had crushes on him. So, and I knew all that. So to have him give this little tiny girl the attention and the affection, that was very significant to me. Mm -hmm. And how, how long did the, the grooming phase uh, take place? I know it, people's individual experiences, but when you look back, because you, you mentioned there's a point where it became an escalation. It goes from being grooming to now being like openly open sexual abuse. How long did the like sort of grooming phase take place? And then what was the escalation? So the grooming phase would have been the year that he was in our field. And so he mm, stayed okay. with us quite a bit. And I, I want to say it was 79, 80 that he was in our field. So that's mm -hmm. when, when the grooming and the, the check in that gate, you know, see how, yeah, yeah. how far those boundaries were. And then when he came back, he specifically asked to come to our home for, to rest, mm -hmm. to take out time off from ministry. Right. And he had specifically written to our family, and I am dead set certain that that was premeditated. Yeah. He already had his eye on the target. And I say that because within a night or two of him being at our house, then the abuse started. And that's where then the feelings of, oh, this is something wrong. People can't find out. All get in trouble. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think this is a really important point that you highlight here is all, all of a sudden, so now the boundaries are crossed. And I think that's actually a really great analogy, like checking the gate. And, and he, he'd sort of set everything up. Was there a gap from the time that he was in your field to the time he came to rest? Or was it like, like a one-year gap? Or Yeah, so it was 79 or 8, 79, 80, the year he was in our field. And then he came to our house, 82. Okay. So yes. it's it almost like a, wow, a celebrity is like coming back, haven't seen him for a while. Were you excited at the prospect oh, of him coming? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He was a, he was a very charismatic, um, very engaging, popular. So, yeah, it was exciting. And, of course, mm -hmm. I didn't realize that an abuse was happening to me, that I was a victim right. of a crime in process right because of the way he had groomed me and my family because predators spend as much time if not more time grooming the community and the families as they do the victim yeah that's that's a super important point there we think that grooming happens only to victims but it's also uh, essentially winning over everyone around them building and, and this is why I think when stories like this start to come out, it's like, that's not possible. That's not the person that we know because there's, there's like another hidden face to it. The public face, the behaving well, the charisma, the charming people and so on, the speaking eloquently, you know, preaching the gospel and sounding very sincere when doing so. And for those who are not prey, this individual would, would seemingly just be a very like godly man who is really, Quite something to be around and so so the abuse escalated into sexual abuse within a couple of nights of him arriving at your home and now you're you're feeling a sense of something's really wrong here but it now did he say to you if you tell anyone about this you'll be in trouble 
did he frame it that way or how it was framed was your family would be mad if they knew right now, but we will get married when you're old enough. So back to that whole seduction thing. And you have this very vulnerable child Mm -hmm. that I just completely fed into that. And as a, as a victim, Oh, okay. This person should be trusted. He's held in high esteem. I can trust him with this, even though every night it was him sneaking to my room or having me go to his room. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand, you don't have to understand, but to give you a little bit of background, yeah. it was a 40, 4,200 square foot ranch style home. My bedroom was at one end of the home, right next to my parents' room. His was at the very other end. So it wasn't like just slip into one room from the other room. There was a lot of risk involved just in the transit to get from one end of the house at the other. And when I looked at the house just recently, physically went out and looked at it, it really hit me as an adult. Wow. The, the manipulation that I was under and the fear of me getting caught because it would have been me from my perspective back then, I would have been the one in trouble. He's the person mm-hmm. in high regard. He is the person to be respected. I am the one that would be doing something wrong in my parents' eyes. Right. Yeah. And, and this is one of the most, oh, like I just get like chills thinking about it. Like it's one of the most, insidious aspects of this that like a man an adult man who knew exactly what he was doing versus a vulnerable child who had been groomed and it's the child that gets the blame for i don't know being a being a naughty child being a a rebellious you know rebellious child or or whatever um and and i think it's so helpful and i really i I really want to acknowledge the fact that you're you're sharing in more detail than probably many would it gives us a little bit more of an understanding of like what, what actually takes place. Because I think an outside observer who has never experienced abuse would, would look at the behaviors of someone who's caught in the, in the trap of, of a predator who's grooming them. And, and an outside observer who's not trapped in it can say, well, why don't, you, why don't you just like say something or do something? But it's hard to understand um, the, the mindset of a child in a situation like that. And so I really I, I appreciate you sharing a little more insight about that. I think it's really it, it's powerful to hear that. So he, he would try to, he, he would also convince you to, to come to his room. And it was like, this is, this is our little secret. This is our secret relationship. And so did it have an, like at that time, because he was, again, you didn't, you weren't aware that really this is, this is a criminal predatory behavior. Um, was it, was it like this, I don't know, element of excitement or was it fear that sort of kept this going and, and maybe how long did this go on for? It was, it was a combination of those emotions, fear, excitement, uh, validation. Oh, I am somebody, you know, if, Mm -hmm. if this celebrity, so to speak is paying attention to me, Oh, I must, I must be something special. So it fed a lot of my needs and that's what predators do is they can hone in on who is vulnerable. That is exactly why he came back to our house. Who She's vulnerable. She, I felt overshadowed uh, by, you know, this family of boys. And right, I, right. Was, I was there to fill a purpose was how my perspective was. And to be flattered and seduced by somebody like that was very big. And then there was also... The feelings of shame. I very distinctly remember one day we were hauling cotton to the cotton gin. I had ridden in the truck mm-hmm. with him and he wanted to make out. And so we're there making out and I'm thinking, you are on my dad's payroll. This is so wrong. Mm-hmm. Don't, that was my thought. Don't do it on the clock yeah. because we are, we oh. are making a living. We're scratching as farmers. This is wrong. And I very distinctly remember that day of feeling, no, it's on the time clock. We shouldn't be messing around. Right. Was this the first um, sort of inkling, like, I, this, this needs, like, 
this needs to change for you? Because it's almost oh, like no. you, you, you were in a trance. So, like, I don't know if it'd be accurate to say that, like, when, when someone who's been groomed, like, you're, you're caught in this situation, you're caught up in, in what is uh, a, a lie that they've, they've cultivated over, you know. So, but you just thought, hey, this shouldn't be happening on the clock, you know, because, you know, but it's okay that this happens uh, outside of it. I guess I, that's what I'm trying to get to is wh where was the point where something went, okay, this cannot continue? Well, that that didn't happen until he left because, see, it was oh, so right. framed that he was my boyfriend. Right. And oh, that I was his girlfriend. Yeah. And right. that's where the song, um, the Holland Out song, he used that on me, Maneater. And so it was that I was this seductress and, and I mean, I was still a child. I had not started developing yet as a woman. There was mm -hmm. nothing mm -hmm. about me as a human that was womanly. I was a girl okay. and he was a 28 yeah. year old man. He's six, yeah. six, 28 year old man. And here I am 13, 14 years old. And I, it was so framed that I was his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. everything about the situation is, is terrible like i actually have a shiver down my spine thinking about it. like it's just everything about it is so wrong and so he, he stayed with the, your family for for how long from the end of october to the end of december and, and, and did did, did did it ever like slip out did anyone ever have an inkling anyone in your family have an inkling that this was taking place or was he exceptionally good at keeping it hidden exceptionally good at keeping it hidden no one ever knew now he would call once he left uh he because he left like december 20th mm -hmm. and of 82 and then he would call our house from time to time and i remember the call he called one day um inviting us to his wedding and that just spun me out no kidding right oh yeah wow. yeah and looking back i think he was calling to see if anybody had had an idea my brothers oh, oh, my parents bad. had no idea and my parents did see changes in me and they didn't understand because i had for the most part been a pretty i think decent kid to raise and you know, so I'm going from 14 to 17. All girls are a little bit off the rails on some yeah. days. Yeah, there's just there's the emotional development that's taking place that is, is sometimes can we say like chaotic and unpredictable. Your your body's changing, your hormones are changing, your brain is changing. Like physically, you're developing like all of these things, and you know, without really the emotional maturity to navigate it, you know, independently. This is why I think this is why we're, we kind of have parents is to help us <laughs> or ideally to help us navigate this, this unpredictable situation in life. Um, and so, so he calls, he's testing the waters to see, did anybody find out about this taking place? You hear he's getting married. So the illusion is now shattered. This man, we're never going to get married. I, th whatever we had is, is over. Um, kind of what happens for you next? Well, at that point in time, I felt very betrayed. I, yeah. the betrayal and then the anger and, and I kept it to myself that what had happened because I didn't want to get in trouble because I had right. been doing the nasty, so to speak. And I was the one who would be responsible, not him because he's a respected worker. Right. And it was the beginning of 86 when one day I had said um, to my parents, I said, well, if you knew who Steve Rose was, you wouldn't like him at all or something to that effect. And so the next day, um, my mom came in and asked, well, when are you going to tell me about Steve Rose? She put two and two together that something mm -hmm. had happened just from my statement the day before and, and looking back, Hey, what was this change? And in April, I'm going to jump back just a little a minute to give a bit of insight in April of 83. Um, my dad had given my mom a beautiful watch for her birthday. 
or April 1st. Mm -hmm. And I just was a complete terrorist about it and just ugly. And looking back when I was in counseling, I was like, oh, so this is how people are supposed to be treated that are loved. And I thought I was. And so all this anger that I didn't even know couldn't put words to it because mm -hmm. at that time I still didn't realize a crime had been committed to me. I thought I was just mm -hmm. a jilted girlfriend. Right. So when I yes. told my parents what had happened, they immediately believed me. Uh, there has been abuse in our family with other family members. Right. So you kind of consent it. And they completely believed me, got me into a counselor straight away who I did reconnect with this last year. And okay. she really changed the path of my life. Her and my English mm -hmm. teacher, who my English teacher let me do a research, an iSearch paper as my senior paper on the effects of molestation. Mm. So and, and if I could zoom out a little bit here, in it, like, did you, because of course, this is also framed in the context of being a part of this, the, the fellowship um, or the, the, the two by two church. But was there a point in time where you had professed and were an active participant within the church or was, was all of this with all of this kind of going on? Um, did you feel like you, you couldn't do that? No, I, I was professing up until I moved out of the house. Yep. Okay. When I moved out of the house, then I left it all. And then th this was taking place in the fall. Um, were, were you going to high school at the time? And was this like, uh, you know, did you ever share with anybody that this was taking place? When I was being abused? Yeah. No. So from when the abuse started in October of 82 to January of 86, I, I do not recall ever telling one single person. So you kept, yeah, man, you kept the secret for, for, for those years. And, um, yeah. And so now you, now you tell your parents, Hey, this is what's taking place. And they immediately believed you. So now I, you know, of course, hindsight being 2020 and I, I, I don't, um, let's say I don't like to try to, uh, attach like future hindsight, to like past experience in a sense, but when they believed you, did it come out there? Like, Hmm we should have seen this or how did your parents respond like to knowing this had taken place with you? They were, they were very supportive of me. Uh, like I said, they didn't ever doubt me. They sent a letter to Eldon Tenniswood, the California overseer immediately okay. who ironically, even though David Mary Joe knew him, uh, there was never any doubt, any question which always has led me to believe this wasn't the first issue that they had had with somebody because naturally I think it would be, wow, tell me more about it or, Oh my goodness, this is a surprise or I didn't see it coming from that person. There was not a trace of that. Not one yeah. trace of surprise or shock at all. Right. Because, you know, I, I listen to how you describe this this man's behavior, and I think, yeah, th this, he, he, I wonder how many, like, girls he targeted like this, and for how long as well, using this position of authority, um, as well as his, his sort of natural physical gifts or charisma or things like that, to, to, to do this. Because you, you absolutely would not have been the only one. And so... He was, did he leave the work of his own volition or did he leave the work because stories were starting to seep to the surface? That's a great mystery. When he came to rest from the ministry at our house, it was because he had dietary needs. So he had to use this special diet. And so a whole separate meal had to be cooked for him, which looking back, why would you go to a family with five kids and put, a special diet on that agenda for the family. Yeah, yeah. So I've talked to several people trying to get to the bottom of that and have never received a cut and dried answer as, as to why. If it was 
there was more to the story or if it was the dietary thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you said age, pardon me, age 17, you left home. Um, your parents had been supportive. Were you, were you, uh, like angry about the situation? Did you, at that age, were you able to connect some dots and realize like the fellowship or the structure, the hierarchy, how things were set up had been like a catalyst for this kind of behavior being able to occur? Or was it just, um, actually, I'll just, I'll just kind of leave it at that. What, what was your sense of things at 17 when you, when you left home? Uh, there was some anger and there were, it took quite a while to process the fact that I was a victim of a crime mm -hmm. to change that mindset over from a young girl to a young adult and understand that a crime had been committed on me. Mm -hmm. That was, that took some time. I don't think I fully realized the organization's participation in the cover-up until when I went to the DA's office down in Tulare County and talked to them. And at that point in time, they told me, you know, they're going to ring you through. It's, it's going to be really rough going through court. Mm -hmm. They're going to put you through the ringer, going to ask you every detail about it. I chose not to. I was not... Mm -hmm. Yeah. able to as a 17 and a half year old to do that. But what I did ask at that point in time, you guys go back to every home he ever stayed in and you find mm -hmm. the other victims. And then they brought him to our house to apologize. And it was terrible. It was terrible yeah. to bring him in to, our home, which is supposed to be a sanctuary, which is supposed to be a safe place, and brought him with a couple other workers, and he apologized, and it was complete BS. And I told him, the only reason you're apologizing is because you got caught. If you were truly sorry for what you had done, you would have apologized a long time ago. And there was a lot of language, even though there were workers there, I just <laughs> let my language go. And... Good. I was, yeah. I was hot. I was, I was really hot about it. And again, asked you guys go to every home that was never done. Now, Eldon did ask my mom, do you know of any other victims? And so she reached out to some people, but it was never asked of Eldon. Do you know of other people? What right. have you done? Even though that was yeah. my request. So at this time, Eldon, so for those who, again, listening, who might not be unfamiliar, this is Eldon Tenniswood. And at the time, was he the overseer of California? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah. And for those listening, the overseer is essentially like the, like we call it like the head, the head minister kind of thing. It would be like a, I don't know, a bishop or, you know, you have, might have like a priest and then you would have like a, you know, a deacon, a priest, a bishop, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, the overseer. Uh, manages essentially all of the workers in that in whatever geographic area he's overseeing and so what i guess it's easier it's hard to say specifically but like when you think about like him trying to find out from you or if there are more victims was there ever any you know back then this is pre-internet you know was there any any communication with fields with elders with anything like that like that this individual has a history or pattern of behavior that is is criminal absolutely not Absolutely not. There were a lot of workers who knew about it. Uh, Ed Alexander, Harold Hilton. I mean, there were there were a lot of workers who were aware of what went on, and and that knew that he admitted to molesting me. And I only found this out in the last year, but six years after he had admitted to molesting me. They promoted him to being an elder and having meeting in his home, which oh, gosh. he had meeting in his home up until our website went out in April of this year is the first time the people in his field were told by us, by AFTT, that they were meeting with a pedophile. Oh, man. So. For, that sounds like, like almost 30 years this guy had a meeting in his home as an elder and, a, again, a respected position of authority? 
Yes, sir. Oh my gosh. Like honest. Like I know I know I look back now, but I'm like, what were they thinking? Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, yeah. it's a very consistent theme. Yeah, as we as we've uncovered. So if we if we sort of shift back to your story, and so you said because I wanted to highlight something else here that I think is really really important for people to hear. So you went to the DA's office, said like I've been a victim of a crime. You're now you're now 17 years old, so you're aware that this is a crime that took place. But when they describe, here's what would happen if you were to go to court to try to prosecute this man for the crimes he's committed. Like you're going to be almost on trial. In fact, you are going to be really on trial here because you have to try to prove his guilt, which means that your everything that took place is going to get dragged out. All the nitty gritty graphic details going to get dragged out. Their lawyers are going to challenge your character. Like, and you're 17 years old, and and you know it sounds like you're developing a bit more of a like a bit more strength of character. And and you know I think now I know that you have a you've got a, a feisty side to you, which is why you're you're fighting so hard now, which is absolutely incredible. I'm so glad you're doing this, but. You know, it, is it like what uh, what sort of ran through your head when they, they said, OK, this is what it would be like um, if we if we try to put this man on trial? I'm out. I am processing this myself. The change from being seduced to being a victim of a crime. I'm processing all that. There's no way that I could explain that I had butterflies on my underwear and what my pajamas look like and how he right. touched me and how far it went. There was, there was no way I could put myself through that at that age. And then the statute of limitations for California back at that time had cut off by the time I was 25, which I still was not in a place mentally or emotionally to be able to go through that. Mm in a room full of strangers no burying kidding. my soul, everything that had happened to me physically, mentally, emotionally. Yeah. No. And, and, and this is, this is like one of the most, like I, I feel a visceral reaction in my gut as I'm picturing you, like someone like basically saying, this is what you would have to go through to bring this man to justice. And, and I understand that of course we have a justice system for, for, for a reason. And, and, you know, to try to prevent false accusations and things like that. But as we know, statistically speaking, like especially when a child is involved, that, that the likelihood of a false accusation is just, it is tiny. And so it's 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 awful to think that that's what you would have to go through. And so at what point did you uh, leave the fellowship and say, that's it, I'm out. Um, I don't want anything to do with this. And, and, I, and maybe it's an obvious question, but like the abuse that took place, is that like the catalyst for this? Not so much for leaving it. I My understanding of a relationship with God was that being a, a teenager at that time, I was a normal teenager, nothing bad, rebellious, but it was like, well, if I'm going to hell, I might as well go to hell wearing makeup and cut my hair. So I'm leaving. Right. Because those right. are the things you want to do. Yeah, yeah, those are rules, yeah. and if God can't accept me with shorter hair and makeup, then, well, heck, I'm going there anyway. So that was more, it was more that than the way that the abuse was handled, though down the road, I was able to look at how the organization handles it, and that just solidified my feelings about the organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. Uh, did so once how old were you once you left and like did anybody ever reach out or try to ask you or or provide any kind of support or anything like that or what was or were you like a shunned pariah once you left and i know it's kind of, it's kind of a bigger question but i guess i'm looking like how was how did your family deal with it how did maybe others who would have known you in the church deal with it what what was that like for you no no one reached out to me no um and i had moved from oregon down to california so I was completely out of the community geographically right. that I had been in. And so no, no one, no one reached out to me and, and that was okay with me. I, I really didn't, really didn't want anything to do with it. Fair enough. Yep. Um, now your, your parents and your siblings, 
Uh, I don't know, are your parents, I actually didn't ask you before the, <laughs> before the interview, um, are your parents still alive? And if so, like, did, did they continue to be part of the fellowship? Uh... Yes, my dad passed last year. He was in the fellowship until his death. And uh, my mom still is, Mary Jo still is. Okay, yeah. And so um, all, all through the years, I mean, I know that when somebody leaves a fellowship, it, it, it can. Um, not always, but often it will change sort of the dynamic of the relationship. And did, did your siblings, your brothers, uh, did any of them profess and do any of them continue to do so? None of them are professing. The last sibling that left was probably eight years ago, about mm -hmm. eight years ago, and left the fellowship. And there was a, there was a situation uh, 13 years ago that really opened my eyes to the organization and their cover-up of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so you left, you kind of carried, carried on with your life, uh, and we're fast-forwarding a little bit here. Uh, you, But there came a point in time where maybe you felt like, I need to start fighting for this again, or like, and what what year did that start for you? When, when, and what prompted you to say, hey, I need to start doing something about this again? It was in 2010, and I was sitting at a Padres game, and the Maneater song came on. And I got up and just started Ooh. pacing the stadium. And I went home, and I knew that I had unresolved issues. And I've been in and out of counseling for the last 40 years. And so I wrote an email, and this was, this was a huge, huge turning point. It was 2010. And I wrote an email to Steve, and then I blind carbon copied eight, nine hundred other members, including workers, overseers. There was very minuscule. I think maybe one worker reached back out to me after receiving the email, and it went viral. I didn't know it, but it was two. I had sent it out two weeks before a convention in California. And mm -hmm. so it was very well known. It it for back in the day it went viral. It went onto the truth yeah. meeting boards, wings and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really realized the efforts they go to to sweep it under the rug. And yeah, I was 20, on and this isn't like the nineteen eighties at this point. This is twenty ten. Like not it, I mean, it feels like it's not that long ago. Right. And and there was a ripple effect. Word got out even up in Idaho where he was living with his kids. And, and, and that's what I wanted was word to get out. Hey, you are meeting with a pedophile, an mm -hmm. admitted pedophile. Nothing was, and, and that was a very, for me. And the, the lack of support, the Ed Alexander, who was pretty much the, CSA spokesperson, everybody kept driving me back to him and he just couldn't remember anything, which lo and behold, he had the Elden Tennis Wood letters from the 80s. And I'm just asking for information. Help me put pieces together. Were there other ch victims that you've come across? And I was just stonewalled. And that was a pretty, that was a really difficult time to be victimized again by the organization right because i imagine you would then be perceived as like a troublemaker um someone who's coming in trying to i don't know, tear things down or when you know i imagine and maybe i shouldn't speak for you but in my mind i picture you're trying to right a wrong essentially and trying to prevent other people from being hurt and abused by speaking up Absolutely. And my thing has always been, if I can prevent one child and, mm -hmm. from being harmed, and if I can help one survivor have the courage to go get help, then I've turned something bad into something good. And sharing my, that's why I am so passionate about sharing my story and exposing, because otherwise, as a survivor, it's really easy to feel alone. And that was one of the things about going up against Steve in court back in the day. Mm -hmm. He, you know, for me to go and even though he had admitted it, it was all going to be twisted and turned. How do mm -hmm. I overcome this obstacle today? Right. Bring it on. 
Right. Yeah. But but you think like back then, again, imposing figure, just physically imposing, charismatic. Uh, I, I've never seen a picture, but maybe he's good looking. Uh, and you know what's ironic is uh, when we when we when someone who is perceived as as attractive is in court, they tend to be judged more favorably than someone who is who is perceived to be unattractive. And again, when someone can be well spoken, like it does and it can influence the jury or the judge. Now, you 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 said something else, and I kind of wanted to just get a little bit of a snapshot of that as well. So you had to go through counseling or were kind of in and out of counseling to help people kind of understand the nature of like what, what abuse does to a person. Um, were there any particular, like, you know, some people might turn to drugs or to alcohol or things like that. Did you happen to develop any particular behaviors that were connected to because this has happened to you? And what was, you know, in your case, maybe what was the counseling to try and help to work through? Even though it sounds like a very obvious question, I guess. Well, yeah, my first marriage was a 10-year, very abusive marriage, physically, emotionally, mentally. Wow. And I have two beautiful, amazing daughters out of that marriage. But that abusive marriage was a direct result of my abuse as a kid. I was used to abuse. That's what I was worthy of. I wasn't worthy of anything better. So in and out of counseling, and, and by the grace of God, I never was in an abusive relationship since. I left the, the cycle of abuse because of counseling. Mm-hmm. And, and after the letter 13 years ago, um, and I was, you know, and my first counselor gave me something that has been a nugget throughout my life. This is not something as a survivor, it's not it's something we can put off our checklist. Okay, I've I've dealt with that, I'm done. Right. She said, because I am a list person, I want to get it done and move on with the rest of my life. She said, You will deal with this the rest of your life. It's peeling an onion. And you'll get to another situation in life and you're gonna take another layer of that damage off of you. So be prepared that you're going to have to you don't get to in order to be healthy, you do not get to say, okay, I've done counseling. I'm done with this. So mm. she prepared me that my life would be in and out of counseling. As I healed through that, that layer of the onion, then there was another one. But the, the 13 years ago in 2010, that did lead to a lot of um, damage, a lot of hurt. And as a result of that, I did end up drinking very heavily because mm-hmm. I just wanted to numb the yeah. yuck of, of the being silenced of it doesn't matter. Uh, we dealt with it. Here I am screaming to protect and to expose. And they're saying, shut up. Just mm-hmm. a hand in the face. Oh, Yeah. And and so, again, I think you've touched on some really, really important things that I, I again, I want to shine a light on because I want people listening to this to really, truly understand. One is that this isn't just something that you get over. No. There's this idea. That happened years ago. It's like, no, it's just written into a part of your brain. This happened at a time when your brain was was really developing. It, it's, it affects, like, the development of your, the maturation of your brain because you went through an experience that was that was abnormal. And so an outsider would look at, for example, you said you end up in an abusive relationship, and an outsider would look back, someone who doesn't understand this, would look at this and go, well, why did you do that? And it's like, it's, it's hard for someone who hasn't experienced this to understand that, like, your brain had been damaged by the abuse. And so, as you said, in, in your words, like, that was what you were worthy of that kind of treatment in a relationship. And so because of at that point in time, your sense of self-worth, you felt like this, this was just acceptable. What I'm curious about is what gave you the strength? Again, what, at what point did something click and you go, I cannot keep doing this. Cause you mentioned 10 years and then what gave you the strength and, and what helped you to break free from that? Because that takes incredible like courage to do that. It's not an easy thing to do. No, and it was a very clear and concise moment. He, like I said, he was physically abusive and 
the kids had been exposed to him hitting me one day. And I very clearly knew that day, if my kids ever came to me as adults and said that they had been abused, it was entirely my fault because I was raising them that that was normal and acceptable behavior. And I literally um, had just started, started a job in real estate, served him with a restraining order, $500 in my pocket, and started off on my own with two kids, no child support. But it was so clear that it was my responsibility that I was teaching them what is normal. (laughs) And I would have that on my hands, that blood on my hands, if I kept them in that. And what ages were your children at that time? Pardon? Uh, Five and seven. Five and seven. Wow. That, That takes serious courage to do that. And so here we are today. There's so much more to explore in your story. My goodness. You're one heck of a woman. <laughs> you have come through so much. Um, fast forward to uh, the development of the Advocates for the Truth. And and I, I think this this was like the hand of God. You know, March 21st, 2023, what happened? And yes, I completely agree. It is the hand of God. And I can look back to January 3rd of last year. The hand of God was, was working ahead. That was the last day I... It was your birthday? Yeah, I remember that every year because that's okay. the day I stopped drinking and I started counseling thinking wow, that I was yeah. going to counseling for drinking heavy and it was actually this another layer of this onion. And so God was working upstream back January 3rd of 22. And so then jumped to March 23rd of this year. Cynthia, Lauren and I, Lauren and I had gone to Canby to meet Cynthia, who we'd been working with since November of last year. We had been going to meet her and meet her face to face. And on the morning of the 23rd, oh my gosh, here's the news that of the Dean Brewer letter. Hmm. Now, just let me pause for one sec because you mentioned Lauren and Cynthia. And I'm curious how they came into the picture because and for those who are listening to this you will hear on other episodes lauren's story and cynthia's story as well but how did how did the three of you like come uh, come together because i think this this too is really quite something and of course we'll let lauren tell her story but i just want to know how you two uh got together and how cynthia came into the picture yes it's a it's a phenomenal story lauren's sister had seen my 2010 email on the internet because of the song in there she knew it was about her dad lauren is my perpetrator's daughter Mm -hmm. lauren reached out to me in 2020 and so we formed a friendship and uh, a common bond being victims of the same perpetrator Last fall, uh, uh, actually last August, my brother told me, hey, the statute of limitations, there's a look back window in California for criminal and silver charges. And don't know if you want to do anything with it. And so he sent me a link to an attorney in Florida. That attorney in Florida works with Cynthia all the time. Mm -hmm. Cynthia had seen my letter on her desk back in 2010 someone had said, Hey, it looks like the church you were raised in this attorney in Florida in November of last year, October, November reached out to Cynthia and said, Hey, here's, here's this same case again on the table. Cynthia and I connected Lauren and I were already working together and, and starting on our legal and civil stuff. Meet Cynthia, who was from this attorney in Florida which we all know a lot of mutual people. And so we, that's how we had been working together was on my criminal and civil cases as well as um, Lauren's. Hmm. So from New York, Texas, Florida to Oregon, 
all these common threads brought us together. And Cynthia's not able to travel. We wanted to meet each other face to face. We'd been working together for five months and um, she wasn't able to travel. So we said, let's go out to see her. Mm -hmm. It so was March no accident that we were all together. Yeah. And so it, it said March 21st, 2023, um, the three of you ladies are together discussing things. Little did you know that 48 hours later, a massive scandal was going to bust loose. Yes, it was it was pretty ironic and that Dale or Doyle Smith was literally staying 40 minutes away from where we were at. And we met with him for three and a half hours that night. And so and then I'm not sure what what you were able to share from that meeting. So Doyle Smith, again, for those listening, is, is a worker. I don't know. Is he overseer or is he just a senior worker or? He's he's the overseer that took Dean Brewer's place. Right. So Dean Brewer was the overseer. And those who've watched the trailer for this uh, for this podcast series, you'll have seen uh, his name mentioned. He is uh, the minister who um, he passed away in June of 2022, I believe it was. But in March of 2023, it, it exploded publicly. Now, this has been known secretly for a number of months, but it exploded publicly. This man was a serial, brutal sexual predator. And so now you're sitting down. This 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 breaks publicly because a letter that wasn't necessarily intended to be shared publicly became public, and all of a sudden the floodgates open. So now you sit down, Doyle Smith. This man's an overseer, and so here he is sitting with three women outside of the fellowship: one, an investigator, and two um, victim survivors. What was it like sitting down with him? And because I'm kind of curious, did you have much contact with the friends, the fellowship uh, workers, things like that? Um, or were you kind of, you mentioned being like shunned and stonewalled for a number of years as you're trying to work through this. What was that like when you got to sit down with him and how receptive was he, if at all? Well, interestingly, I had talked to several overseers and workers from August of last year up till March. So my expectations of getting honest, open answers was not very high. Mm -hmm. So I walked in accepting, expecting kind of what I'd already gotten from Rob Newman, Jeff Thayer, Ed Alexander, Harold Hilton in the last several months, I was, I had that walked in with that same expectation. And one of my biggest things was in the letter, he said that on the laptop, there was incriminating evidence my biggest thing in that meeting was, do you still have the laptop? And if so, it needs to go to law enforcement. That took some talking him into doing it. He didn't want to do it. Um, wanted to pray about it. And I let him know he could pray with or without the laptop. <laughs> and you don't need all of it. So, and did he, what was his reasoning or his hesitation for passing into law enforcement? That he, that he well, state. I have a pretty good idea of what it would be, but what did he state or tell you guys? I don't clearly remember his reason why not to, but I clearly remember his different solutions of other things rather than, you know, he could send it to Montana to one of the friends there that could search for incriminating evidence. Or he wanted to talk to some of the other workers before he handed it over to law enforcement. And it was only after it was explained to him, if there is child porn on the device and you get in a car wreck, you are in possession of child porn and you will be the one facing charges. And at that cool. point, he decided that it would be okay to call law enforcement and have them come pick it up, which they did not do that night because it was out of their jurisdiction. And he delivered it to Clackamas County the next morning. And we followed up with multiple phone calls. Lauren did a great mm -hmm. job on her follow-up that morning. Mm -hmm. And we'll explore more of that, or you'll hear more about that in my conversation with, uh, with, with Cynthia. But I, I love getting to hear that from your, your perspective as well. And so moving forward, uh, you and Cynthia and Lauren formed the organization Advocates for the Truth. And what is what is your mission ultimately that you want to accomplish this? Because I imagine people will hear this and I, I, I can't, well, like I can't imagine like kind of maybe the blowback you've gotten, the people who the nasty stuff you might have gotten from some people who have thought you're trying to tear things down or blow things up or whatever. 
but really so what, what is your mission and how have you found it being received? Our mission is the same that I've been on for 40 years to create exposure of the predators, the pedophiles, the um, adult sexual abuse, expose that and then offer protection, offer a safe arena for survivors to come forward where they're going to get, be heard, be believed and have resources available. So we do have resources available through um, our own 501c3. And then we've partnered with two other completely independent, money does not go through AFTT at all. Those provide resources for people to get counseling. Mm. So that's all part of the protection for survivors to, to get them the help that we all need as survivors. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And, and I, I mean, I think it's absolutely incredible work that you, you ladies are doing. Um, honestly, I'm so deeply grateful for what you're, what you're doing and how, you know, I think what, like how voraciously you have fought like four people inside a fellowship that all of you have been touched by, but are no longer a part of. And here I am at this point in time, <laughs> I haven't been kicked out, but, uh, here you are fighting for this. And I think like, I have, I have a toddler and a, and a, and a, an infant, a newborn. And I'm, I, and I think like, if, if I'm going to stay like a part of this fellowship, because there are aspects of it that I like, you know, and I think if people watch the trailer, you'll see, I actually speak a little bit about this. Like why, why be a part of this when I know all of this is taking place. Um, I'm so grateful that you have fought so hard for this, this that, I, that I'm currently a part of and haven't been kicked out for, for producing this series. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to really be able to share your story. I'm kind of curious, just as we, as we get, uh, get near the end of this here, um, where do you stand on, you've mentioned God and uh-huh. if I'm mistaken, you're wearing a cross. I'm kind of curious where you stand on kind of like your beliefs in around Christianity, God, and so on after having experienced what you did. I, I'll, I'll leave it there and, and just yes. hear your thoughts. Yes. Well, and I didn't, I I forgot one thing I was going to say because I am a Christian and I do have a relationship with God and it is not my mission at all to destroy a fellowship. And I strongly believe that anything of God cannot be torn down by man. Mm -hmm. Are there some structural things that, that need to change? Absolutely because it's a perfect breeding ground for predators. But yes, I am a strong Christian. I went to a Amway conference in my early 20s and went to the Sunday service where the keynote speakers were going to be. And I thought, okay, I'm walking into hell already because we're not supposed to go to any of these false religions. But I was very fed. On the way home, I thought the plane was going to fall out of the sky because I had gone to another church. And started getting my eyes opened to a relationship with God. And that is very different. Spirituality, relationship with God, for me, is very different than religion. And mm-hmm. my upbringing, I looked at it as a religion, not mm-hmm. as a relationship with God. And I know people are at all different parts of their journey. I don't ever want to preach and and trigger people, whatever they were all freedom of, I believe in freedom of religion, but Mm -hmm. I also, for me, have a very close relationship with God. And I don't think that that needs to be dictated by a church name, a church Mm -hmm. building. It's a one-on-one. I love that. Well, if I could give you a big hug, I would just to say thank you so much. And also just for what you've shared today, like for, for being so open, for receiving all of my questions uh, so openly, I, you know, your willingness to share and to, to share some of the details that will maybe be difficult for other people to share will maybe give them the courage to, to take the steps they are able to so that we can ultimately bring these perpetrators to justice and we can create a safe environment for people to practice their faith as they best see fit. So as we, as we close out last thing, um, I'll, I'll let you close out the episode. Are there any words of wisdom or words of encouragement you would like to share? Well, first, thank you very, very much for your part in exposing 
that is, it, what you are doing is huge and I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. And I think to let people know that they are not the only ones and it is, it is scary to acknowledge the damage that's been done, but, but the benefits of acknowledging it, of opening that can of worms is absolutely life-changing and the journey of healing is varied for every one of us the most important part is to be on the journey towards healing and give yourself grace and and to really reach out and find a good support system where you can really let your walls down be safe and trust and um life can be really really good and even though bad things happen to us we can still have a great life i love that that's a great note to finish on we can still have a great life thank you so much for being on today sherry greatly appreciate it my pleasure thank you so much jonathan thank you so much for tuning into the hidden truth if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share this episode because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. It is so important these stories are heard so that we continue to raise awareness and support victim survivors on their healing journey. For those who've been affected but haven't found your voice yet, I really hope these stories inspire you to keep moving forward on your healing journey. Thank you.